Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon the generous financial contributions of our listeners in order to continue bringing Fighting for the Faith to you. Uh, would you please uh, support Fighting for the Faith financially by joining our crew or sending in a donation to uh, support us financially? You can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. That's a mere $6.95 a month. Or if you'd like to make a flat contribution, you can do so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. Thank you for your support. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Thursday, February 4th, 2010. Just six months away from the 4th of July. I'm trying to think of happy, warm thoughts because they tell us that there's a big snowstorm heading our way. Six to eight inches of snow. I'm going to be shoveling. I can use the exercise. Ah. It's one of those days. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Roseborough, and I am your servant in Jesus Christ. And this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which is to help you to think biblically, to help you to think critically, and to compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. Um, Perilous times. Uh, We live in very interesting, perilous times spiritually. And the reason I say that is because there's... You know, in the visible Christian church, there is a lot of rank error, heresy, and it's apostasy palooza right now in the uh, in the visible church, at least here in the United States of America. I, I understand in some other nations around the world, uh, they are blessed with uh, the actual preaching of the gospel. And while we're left here with some bizarre spiritual dregs that is just bitter and horrible to have to listen to and watch. And so uh, what we do here at Fighting for the Faith is we take what people are saying in the name of God and we compare it to the Word of God. And it's designed to help you Christians to be more discerning. And if you're not a Christian and you're listening to this program, and I get emails from people who are not Christians who do listen in, um, you know, here's the good news. Christ died for your sins. We're all about preaching the gospel and actually telling you about what Jesus Christ has really, truly done for you. And we base this not on some bizarre idea that we've come up with because we've had a liver shiver or a burning in our bosom. Uh, instead, this is what the scriptures teach. Uh, unfortunately, nowadays, there's some bizarre stuff as to what people are saying about Christianity. And uh, as a result of it, the gospel itself uh, seems to more and more be taught less and less, if you know what I mean. So anyway, to, I've had one of those weeks where um, my research has led me down a trail where I'm having a hard time processing it. <laughs> And, and when that happens, I usually do a think-along program. I'm not going to do a think-along program today. I, I'm not ready to uh, have anybody think along with me on what it is that I'm discovering. And uh, I, 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 I'm not even sure if what I'm discovering even makes any sense. Anyway, 
Long story short, I'll have to tell you about it maybe next week. Remind me about that, will you? Okay, today's edition of Fighting for the Faith. Yeah, because my brain is a little bit fried, we're going to slow down a little bit uh, today. And uh, what on today's program, let's see here, uh, email. I got, I, got, I got a little bit of email that I want to go through. We're going to get to the story from uh, the Telegraph in the U.K. Apparently Ringo Starr, uh, former Beatle, uh, drummer for the Beatles, ha- he's found God. I, my question is which one? It's, it's uh, very difficult to figure out which God he apparently seems to have found. And uh, we'll talk about that. And then we've got audio from a video. Uh, from N.T. Wright, and um, he's discussing how uh, the Enlightenment worldview um, has impacted our view of the Scripture and why cleaning the spectacles through which we uh, view the world can help us to see both Scripture and the world more clearly. And uh, I, that's apparently what it's all about, but I'm just sitting there going, huh? <laughs> what? It, you'll you'll have to listen, and it's... Um, well, you know, entertaining. Um, and then uh, let's see here. A sermon review today is not a standard sermon review. Um, and the reason why is because it's not really a sermon. Uh, Dallas Willard of Spiritual Formations fame, uh, those of you who have attended uh, Bible college or seminary any time in the last 20 years here in the United States and even in you know, Western nations, may have uh, have come in contact with the writings of Dallas Willard or Richard Foster and uh, been taught uh, you may you may have even taken a class on spiritual formation and uh i i got to tell you there's something really really um yeah there's that's that's a very sulfur laden um uh department if you would in fact, I would even say it doesn't belong anywhere near a uh, Christian college, church, or seminary that claims to be Christian. Uh, we'll talk about that more next week. But uh, Dallas Willard of uh, Spiritual Formations fame, uh, he, he uh, had, one of his disciples is John Ortberg. And uh, in fact, uh, it, it's no big secret that John Ortberg is really into the Renovare uh, spiritual formations thing. He's appeared on a couple of videos uh, that Renovari has put out. And uh, Dallas Willard came to um, uh, John Ortberg's church, I think it's Menlo Park uh, Presbyterian Church in the Bay Area in California, and uh, and it spent some time on the uh, stage answering questions. Tough questions and we're going to be listening to the Dallas Willard's answers to some of these tough questions and uh, I'm going to ask the question just straight up front and um, is Dallas Willard even a Christian is Dallas Willard a Christian now you're sitting there going well he has to be a Christian you got Christian publishing houses publishing his books. His books are being taught and, and read by Bible students in Bible colleges and seminaries all over the visible church in, in, in English-speaking uh, countries around the world. Of course he's a Christian. And yet I still um, I don't know the answer to this question. In fact, I'm leaning towards no. 
And uh, I, I know you're sitting there going, now that's really provocative and judgmental of you. Yeah, I, I understand that, yes. And uh, you're judging me if you're claiming me to be judgmental at this point, which kind of, see, we need to uh, apply biblical discernment. And what we're going to do is we're going to listen to his answers to these questions. Uh, we, we have a question regarding the assurance of salvation, uh, the, uh, a question regarding Christian arrogance, a, cr- a question regarding hell. Uh, we have a, a question regarding the Bible, the nature of the Bible, uh, whether or not Jesus is God, uh, what are the differences in different religions, why is uh, Jesus such a big deal, why is Jesus the truest way, uh, how about sexual orientation, what about homosexuality? And after you hear uh, uh, Dallas Willard's answers to the nine questions that we're going to play his answers to uh, in, uh, later in the program today, um, if you can point me to the part where Dallas Willard's definition of who is saved and why actually jives with biblical Christianity – uh, uh, then I would like to see it because at this point, like I said, the answer on the table is, is Dallas Willard even a Christian? And um, I'm leaning towards the no answer. I'm leaning towards no, and I, I'm, not, I don't, I'm not running into any evidence that would point me towards uh, yes. And um, again, I know that sounds really judgmental and very provocative. Stay tuned. Walk through these answers with me, and uh, I will share with you my uh, concerns. Uh, and they're deep, and they're deeply rooted in uh, what the Bible actually says. So uh, that will be our program for today. Guaranteed to be provocative. And why? Well, because what do we do here at Fighting for the Faith? We do have a tendency to upset people's apple carts and to take sacred cows and ruthlessly slaughter them in front of other people's eyes. It's it's a job hazard. It's a, it's a thing I got to do. All right, moving along here. Uh, it's time for email. First email comes from Jake, and I do not know where Jake is from. But Jake writes, by the way, if you're going to email me and you wouldn't, you know, if you, if I select your email to be read on the air, it's, it's good if people know actually where you're from. So, uh, you know, Jake, I apologize. I cannot divine that from your email. But uh, when you do email me, let me know your, uh, where you're from, too. So, okay, let's see. Jake writes and says, hey, Chris, my name is Jake and I have been listening to your show for about three weeks while I'm at work. Okay, hopefully you won't get in trouble and uh, lose your job. He says, I've, I've really enjoyed your point of view on things, and it's great to hear someone standing up for the gospel and its only message, Christ and him crucified. I just recently listened to your interview with Doug Paget, and then your response to that a few days, and I agree completely with you. My former youth minister and I were talking the other night about your program and the church in general. It's amazing to see how Christianity has been attacked not only from non-believers, but now those non-believers' attacks are being used as tools to get you to, quote, experience Christ and being taught from, supposedly, our shepherds. Yeah, that's right. Our pastors are teaching us how to experience Christ, otherwise known as the Roman Catholic monastic mysticism. Uh, 
if you ever hear like a, an emergent or innovative guy talk about vintage Christianity, that's usually a buzzword that means they're going to be introducing you to Roman Catholic monastic mysticism. Uh, we continue. He says, I have no problem with the new and innovative churches. I feel that praise bands and the like are all right. Now, Jake, I'm glad you say this. Uh, uh, the the church I uh, attended in Southern California, good uh, confessional Lutheran congregation, they had a a service that uh, that you know they called it the gift service, and uh, they had it, not a praise man, but I would say they had musicians who played contemporary instruments. Probably a better way of putting it. And so there was a drummer, there was a, a guy who played bass guitar and keyboard and and uh, an electric guitar, and then they they would got, brought this guy in who played oboe and 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 flutes and things like that, and it, and it was a fantastic service, very fantastic service. And here's the thing, is that I don't have a problem with different styles of music. My issue is what does the content of the song bring if it's focusing on me myself and i or doing some kind of weird mantra meditation where i've it's a 7-eleven song where um you know i'm somehow repeating seven words 11 times in order to quote experience the presence the holy spirit of god uh i've got a problem with that or if it's a if it's a you know it's a vaguely erotic song as far as making jesus into my bearded girlfriend i'm not singing it um, so I don't have a problem with the with um, music styles. Now, one of the things that's important, though, is in the gift service is that uh, the musicians uh, who played the contemporary instruments uh, during the worship service were in the back of the church. They were in the back. Why? Because church is not a performance. And so, um, listen, I... For me, it's all about content, 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 content. Is it focusing me on Christ and him crucified? Is it, am I singing the great doctrines of the Christian faith? Am I singing the great passages of scripture, the great teachings of the Bible? Am I being pointed to Christ and what he's done for me and what a great God that we have? Or am I singing about myself in some future tense kind of way and focusing on me on some, you know, basically with, you know, just an, just some dipped thing that you know some weird cliche of a song you know you know some weird cliche kind of thing just repeated in in vague whatever and you, you understand what i'm saying so yeah i agree with you that it, the style isn't the thing the the question is the content that being the case um i also think it's important to note that there's very there just really seems to be very few churches out there who have adopted modern musical styles without compromising doctrine not a lot of it's it's really hard to do anyway and i'm not saying it's impossible i'm just saying it's really tough he anyway he says i love hymns and my church consists of about a 50 50 mix of the two my main concern is how the message is easily fluctuated i think there is one message and one message only and what and and uh, we see eye to eye on that the scariest thing to me is how rapidly the emergent movement is growing I'm with you here. He says, people are eating it like candy. I, <clears throat> he says, uh, he, uh, I, I decided to do my uh, use my Lectio Divina, and I tried to unpackage the candy analogy. 
And he says, I view the emergent movement as candy, and that's why people are attracted to it. Who wouldn't be? It's sweet. It's appealing. People love it because it makes them feel good. Uh, a Bible-believing and teaching church is like meat and potatoes to some, uh, not a, as appealing but vital to one's growth and perseverance. Uh, take two kids and give uh, one nothing but candy and sweets uh, for uh, for their life, and then take the other and feed them meat and potatoes and occasional candy and see which one grows up strong and healthy. I feel that Christ laid out uh, laid out the church uh, was supposed to be and what message was supposed to be taught. It may take a while, but this movement will crumble because people who really want to know Christ will see that they aren't spiritually healthy and move on from this fad. Thank you so much for your program. And uh, Jake, you're welcome. And uh, I, I don't share your optimism, okay? Uh, in fact, those of you who uh, who listen to Todd Friel or you read uh, Phil Johnson's uh, Pyromaniacs blog, both of those guys are pretty open about the fact that they think the emergent thing is dead or going away, that it's a, it's it's so like 2001 or 2002. And um, I don't agree with them. I, I do not at all believe, uh, believe the emergent thing is going away. I do think it's morphing. I do think it's going to turn into something else. And, um, you know... McLaren's going to continue to be some strange, uh, bizarre heretic with these wild ideas that are semi-socialist and uh, have more in line with liberation Hegelian uh, theology. The thing is, is that these guys have had a radical impact on the church. And uh, as as I watch, and see, that's the thing is, is that I, I kind of have a unique position here at Fighting for the Faith, and that is, is that I listen to a lot of sermons. Uh, in preparation for the program, and uh, as a result of it, I I have a unique perspective in the sense that I'm actually able to catch trends uh, before ever, anyone else notices that they're a trend, and uh, some of the things I do here at Fighting for the Faith is actually preemptive, uh, because I see the trend coming, and I see how I see who's adopting whose uh, ideas and who's taking that thing that they heard at the conference and putting it into practice in their church or preaching it from their pulpit. And uh, let me explain it to you this way. Where the emerging church was, not emergent, emerging, where the emerging church was in 2003, okay, it seemed like a unique thing all of its own at that time. And I'm talking like Dan Kimball, Driscoll, and those guys. Where the emerging church was in 2003, the general seeker-driven church is now becoming, okay, uh, after almost a decade of influencing uh, youth groups and college students and uh, people like that, the guys who've grown up in this stuff who have known nothing else except for emerging errors and their spirituality and their mysticism, they think that's the norm in Christianity, and there's an army of those guys. And they're taking their seats as leaders and pastors in uh, seeker-driven churches around the country and around the Western Hemisphere. And as a result of it, I think we're, we have got some bad, bad days ahead. Um, I think heresy season next year is going to be worse than heresy season this year, and this was a record heresy season. I think heresy season five years from now 
Um, I, I the stuff that I'm going to be talking about five years or now should the should the Lord tarry and uh, should I continue to have the privilege to serve you by doing this program the stuff that we're going to be talking about now is going to is going to have your head spinning. I mean, it, if I were to, if I were to just lay out some of my predictions, people would say there's no way that would ever happen in the church. Yeah, that's the thing is, is as I'm watching, I don't think things are getting better. I actually think they're getting way, way worse. And this is the kind of thing that can't improve on its own. It won't improve on its own. This, the only thing that will turn this around is God himself. And, um, and our part in this, if you would, is to, uh, boldly preach, teach, confess, uh, biblical Christianity in the face of it. That that's what we're called to do. So, anyway, I apologize if I sound like I'm if if I have a bad attitude you know, because I don't have a I, I just don't I don't think the emergent thing is dead at all. And of course, I attended two emergent conferences in you know in, in the past six months, and uh, didn't look like it was anywhere near dead to me. I mean, these were very well attended conferences, and um, and just because uh, Tony Jones isn't the visible head of the emergent church right now, it, it never had a visible head anyway. Anyway, uh, so <clears throat> just my opinion. All right, moving along. Next email. This one comes from uh, Jay uh, Renato, and I do not know where Jay is from because he didn't tell me his uh, his town, but that's okay. Um, Jay writes, he says, uh, given all the terrible uses of the law in many of the sermons you review, I was wondering if you could explain or give a sermon example of a good use of the law specif- uh, specifically as it applies as a guide to the Christian. You do a good job of pointing out the bad use of the law as well as, uh, as the, uh, how that applies to convicting us of our sins. I was wondering if we could see how the law applies to sanctification. Now, uh, Jay, I'm actually going to see if I can find a decent uh, uh, sermon that got, does a good job with third use of the law uh, next week. I, yeah, see if I can find that. Um, but in the meantime, I'd actually like to uh, give you something that I think would be helpful. And um, what we're going to do in, in answer to your question, you know, can you give? Can I give you an example of good third use of the law, showing us what a good work is? I submit to you uh, the epistle that the Apostle Paul wrote to Titus, okay? It's three chapters long, and what I'm going to go ahead and do is I'm going to just read the whole thing. Now, those of you who are into the Lectio Divina just will think that this is absolutely the wrong way to read the Bible because uh, all I'm doing is filling up your head with all these words. Keep in mind that uh, when these uh, letters circulated, they were intended to be read in a church service in the presence of everybody. And so that's kind of the idea behind reading a letter is if you want to get the gist of the whole thing, read the whole thing in context. Read it in one setting. These letters were meant to be read in one setting. Just sorry. Okay, so um, and here's the deal, uh, Jay. When we get to uh, like halfway through chapter two and on into chapter three, Pay close attention to how Paul encourages us towards good works. Okay, watch where they flow from. See what he does here. That this is a perfect example of quintessential third use of the law. Okay, so here we go. Titus uh, chapter one verse one. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. 
in hope of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began, at the proper time manifested in his word, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our God, uh, of God our Savior. To Titus, my true child in a common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, or a drunkard, or violent, or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of the good self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. For there are many who are insubordinate, they're empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but to the, uh, to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love and steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works, and in your teaching, show integrity and dignity. Now, I'm going to point this out here. Notice here, Paul is, here in chapter 2, when he's talking about sound doctrine, that sound doctrine includes sound living, if you would. Okay, and what is sound living? Good works that flow from the biblical gospel. Okay. All right. So here we go. So show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Slaves are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, not showing all good faith, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior. So our good works adorn the the teaching regarding Christ. Okay, here we go. Now, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. 
remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, to show perfect courtesy toward all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice, envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of uh, of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. You see, good works flow from our justification. There's no such thing as a Christian, somebody who is justified by grace through faith in Jesus Christ who doesn't do good works. And so here in Titus chapter 3, we have a perfect example of preaching, if you would, by the Apostle Paul in this letter, admonishing us in light of God's mercy to devote ourselves to good works. We continue. These things are excellent and profitable for people, but avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. As for a person who stirs up division, after warning him once and then twice, have nothing to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. When I send Artemis and Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nicopolis, for I have decided to spend the winter there. Do your best to speed Zenus, the lawyer, and Apollos on their way to see that they lack nothing, and let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. To all who are with me, send greetings to you. Greet those who love us in the faith. Grace be with you all. So there's an example from the scriptures of third use of the law. Shows us what a good work is and admonishes us to onto good works and and even Paul says that you know that that we may not be unfruitful. This is the fruit of our faith. Good works is the fruit of our faith. Good did I mention that good works are the fruit of our faith? Okay? What are the good works that he's talking about here? Well again, look at what he's talking about here. Um talking about devoting yourself to sound doctrine, to uh teaching, uh to uh, older men instructing the younger men, older women instructing the younger women uh, to be good husbands, good wives, how to raise children. You see, it's not going and starting an orphanage, although that is a good work. Okay, That is a, absolutely a good work. But don't think for a second that good works are limited to this somehow, you know, the, the, the extraordinary thing. It's not. I mean... 
a washed lady living in the south of, of London in, 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 in abject poverty, loving her husband and her children and caring for, you know, for them, is doing a good work. A slave, a slave who has who doesn't even own his own life, is doing a good work when he serves his master as he would the Lord. And so Christians are admonished in light of the gospel to devote themselves to good works. That's where we spend, you know, that, I mean, that's really, I mean, that's where the rubber hits the road, if you would. Now, I want to point something out to you here. And just, you know, this is not contrary to the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. It's absolutely wrapped up in it that we're not saved by our good works. They're not meritorious. But we are a new creation in Christ, saved to do good works. Listen to this, for by grace you have been saved, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8, 9, and 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So, anyway, Jay, I hope that answers your question about... um, you know uh, about third use of the law. I mean, I, th- I really think Titus gives us a great example of that, and uh, those good works never ever lose sight of the of of justification by grace through faith alone, and never lose sight of the fact that our good works are not meritorious, but our good works do adorn the preaching of the gospel, and they flow from the preaching of the gospel, and it's God producing fruit in our lives. I think that's the way to look at it. All right, we are up on our first break. If you would like to email me, you can. My email address is talkbackatfightingforthefaith.com or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> You're listening to the Emergence Sports Network here on Pirate Christian Radio. You've tuned in just in time to catch today's Emergence Ball match between the Pomo Bombers and the Majestic Mystics. Today's match is proudly brought to you by Rex Quando's Bible Pants. There's the buzzer, and they're off. 
McLaren dribbles the pigskin down to first base, takes out his putter, and... Whoa! Jones checks McLaren against the boards and then passes to Paget in left field. But wait, Fools Weber is charging from the 10-yard line, and she slam-dunks from the foul line. That's a birdie. The crowd is going wild. When was the last time you saw something like that? I don't think I've ever seen anything like this. Okay, play is resuming. There's Rollins. He serves to Bell. Bell snatches the snitch, and then Hail Mary passes to McLaren. McLaren is in the end zone. Oh, and he slaps it back to third base. Tickle grabs her wicket and then punts one out into center court. It looks like Jones and Paget are double-teaming Bowles Weber. He doesn't have a shot, so she slices one off into the rough. McLaren is there to make the safety, but Paget grabs McLaren's face mask and then throws down to second base. What a brilliant save that was. Jones takes out his driver, then sends one out to midfield. Tickle headbutts the ball and then sends it back to McLaren. He vaults over the pummel horse. Oh, and he sticks the landing! Unfortunately, the degree of difficulty wasn't that high, but McLaren racked up seven brownie points. Tickle sets up for the kickoff. But wait, Jones is trying to steal third base. Tickle slapshots the ball back to Bulls Weber, but Jones is safe! He's safe! That means it's going to be third down with 44 meters to the pin. Looks like this match is going to go into sudden death. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled that will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Morning. We're going to ask the tough questions that other people should be asking but aren't. You may not be comfortable with the answers to the questions that we ask. Need to remind you all, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you. And right now, we are a little over halfway to our goal of uh, enlisting 1,000 of you, our listeners, to joining the Fighting for the Faith 
Pirate Christian Radio crew. That's right. It's a our crew. That you're a crew member. It's only six dollars and ninety five cents a month. I mean, that's like nothing. And uh, it's it's like you know a value meal at Burger King, uh, medium sized, not even super sized or, or king sized. You understand what I'm saying? And uh, and the way you join our crew is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. Click on the Join Our Crew button. Join our crew. And uh, and uh, when you join, pay close attention because the last screen there, after filling it all out and hitting the submit button and all that kind of stuff, there will be a button that says click here to access the Fighting for the Faith Pirate Christian Radio Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources, Christ-centered doctrine and theology and apologetics designed to help you grow deeper in your understanding of the Christian faith and how to defend it, especially in light of what's happening today. Lots of old stuff in there. You know, we have been plundering the high seas of theology and have got some great treasure in the cove. Definitely worth uh, worth taking a look at and diving into and enjoying there. Uh, so that's our way of saying thank you to the people who join the crew. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, yeah, when you go to our website, fightingforthefaith.com, click on the donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, moving along here, got a little news here. From the Telegraph in the UK. I do not know who wrote this uh, particular... It says, The Beatles drummer Ringo Starr admits, I have found God. I had no idea God was lost. Anyway, um, let's see. The reformed rock legend who turns 70 in July admitted that he had lost his way when he was younger. First as a Beatle and then later after the group broke up. He experimented with LSD... Uh, not to be confi- confused with LDS, which is Latter-day Saints, that's Mormonism. He experimented with LSD and marijuana when he was a Beatle in the 60s. No, really? And then later in the 1970s, suffered alcohol and cocaine problems. In an interview with the Los Angeles Times, Starr, who is now a teetotal, uh, has and has quit his 60-a-day cigarette habit. Holy cow. And, uh, and, and said that religion was one of the most important aspects of his life. Yeah, yeah, that's great. Uh, way to go for reli- which religion? Um. Anyway, quote, I feel the older I get, the more I'm learning to handle life. Being on this quest for a long time, it's it's all about finding yourself. Well, then he hasn't found Christ. He hasn't found Jesus Christ, the God of Christianity, the one true God in human flesh. He's found himself. Right? Let me read that again. Quote, I feel the older I get, the more I'm learning to handle life. Being on this quest for a long time, it's all about finding yourself. Well, that's not Christianity. By the way, the Christian Post covered this story too. And I can't figure out why, because, I mean, there's no indicator here that uh, that Ringo Starr has found Jesus Christ. But see, that's not even the right way of putting it. The question is, has Jesus Christ found him? Because, see, it's Jesus Christ, the good shepherd, who goes and finds the lost sheep. Okay? But Ringo Starr says he says he's found himself. 
Anyway, uh, quote, for me, God is in my life. I don't hide from that. I think the search has been on since the 60s. Quote, I stepped off the path there for many years and found my way back onto it. Thank God. The path? What path? A star who is a vegetarian is married to former Bond girl Barbara Bach and now splits his time between homes in Los Angeles, London, and Monaco. In the interview, he said it was far easier uh, approaching 70. 40 was, oh, God, 40, he said. Uh, there's that uh, darn song, Life Begins at 40. No, it's not no, it's not so big anymore. I am nearly 70, and I'd love to be nearly 40, but that's never going to happen. I, so, I, I, again, I'm just asking the question, what God did Ringo Starr find? The God within himself? I mean, yay, wow. <clears throat> Score one for religion. But uh, I I don't know which God he found. I, you know, I <sighs> Maybe I'm just looking at it wrong. Anyway, okay, moving along here. I got uh, audio from a video that appeared on Scott McKnight's Jesus Creed blog. And Scott McKnight is uh, kind of the uh, blogging guru of the emerging uh, church movement. Now, he's not emergent. I think he's distancing himself from... Uh, the Tony Jones, Doug Paget, Brian McLaren crowd, uh, but uh, I've I've actually had a few email exchanges with uh, Scott McKnight, and um, he's really good friends with Tom Wright of the New Perspectives, uh, well, actually the New Heresy on Paul uh, doctrine, and uh, here is um, the uh, Bishop of Durham, uh, N.T. Wright, uh, talking about. Well, listen in. I'll comment accordingly. I think the, the difficulty we have is that questions about the historicity of Genesis, questions about the historicity of Adam and Eve, get caught up in contemporary, particularly American culture. And as a Brit looking across the Atlantic, I see this rather more clearly because these are not questions which you regularly find asked in Britain at all. Okay. Um, so because he's an outside observer that... The question of the historicity of Adam and Eve and Genesis and all that kind of stuff, he 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 stands outside of the debate as an outsider looking in, and these are not the kinds of questions that come up at all um, for him there as a Brit. Apparently, why not? Okay, see, I I've got to challenge um, Tom here, and the the reason why I have to is because the last time I checked, um, Great Britain wasn't immune to the uh, infection of philosophical uh, modernism. In fact, it was some of the early Enlightenment thinkers of Europe, including Great Britain, who, uh, who had a profound influence that set the philosophical foundation by which such questions uh, were brought to the United States as well as uh, the world. And uh, so when it comes to the historicity of Adam and Eve and all of that, uh, it was the modernists who said, oh, that's preposterous. That's that's just silly. The idea that God created the world in six days. <laughs> Come on. What kind of 
ignoramuses do you think we are? We live in a modern era now. We don't need to believe that mythological stuff about, you know, uh, all of us descending from, you know, one common uh, couple, Adam and Eve, as if they historically existed. That's ridiculous. And in response to modernism, Christianity, including Anglicans, Presbyterians, Lutherans, and, and even Methodists and Baptists, responded and said, no, Adam and Eve are historical people. They really, truly did exist. And I would bring to the table just a couple of simple statements along these lines. First of all, let's let's take a look at uh, let's take a look at Jesus's genealogy in the book of Luke. Luke records this for us in Luke chapter 3 we learn of Jesus's ancestry, okay? Let's see here. We'll pick up Luke chapter 3. Uh, tell you what, at the tail end of it, we'll pick it up at the tail end. Here we go, uh, verse 36, who was uh, Shelah, the son of uh, Canaan, the son of Arphaxad, the son of Shem, the son of Noah, the son of Lamech, the son of Methuselah, the son of Enoch, the son of Jared, the son of Mahalil, the son of Canaan, the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. Didn't, if I'm reading this correctly, there. I mean, how would you allegorize this um, statement here? I mean, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Luke records for us the genealogy of Jesus Christ and we've got all of these historical people, you know, starting with his parents, going to, well, actually, in this particular case, it's kind of interesting because Jesus Christ, he's, um, he doesn't have an earthly father. He is the son of God, but Joseph is kind of the surrogate uh, adopted father, in a sense, if you would. And, you know, and so here we've got this, this line right here that goes all the way back to a non-historical person. That doesn't make any sense. I mean, if Jesus wasn't a historical person, then that does, I mean, why is it there as if it, if, as if it is? I mean, then the Bible has got to be lying to us because here we've got Jesus' line of descent. And the, uh, here we've got all these people from the Old Testament in, in here. Okay, including Nathan, the son of David. We got Jesse. We've got... Uh, you see where I'm going with this? We got Boaz. We got, uh, it's ridiculous. So I'm supposed to somehow not believe this? And, of course, the Bishop of Durham, Tom Wright, in the 21st century, as an outside observer, thinks that this, oh, we don't even ask these types of questions. But I think it's a logical question that actually comes from the text itself. What about Jesus' own words? Um hang on a second here. Let me see if I can find this real quick because I didn't pull this up ahead of time. Okay, here we go. This is interesting. Um, okay, Matthew chapter 19. Matthew chapter 19. We read. Uh, now, when, uh, let's see. And the Pharisees, uh, Matthew chapter 19, verse 3. Pharisees came up to Jesus and tested him by asking, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and 
female and said, therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. So they're no longer two, but one. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So Jesus here, correcting the Pharisees, points them back to Genesis and to the creation account. Huh. I mean, I'm 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 getting the idea here that Jesus actually believed um, that uh, the Genesis account was real. Or how about this, uh, Matthew chapter twenty-three, uh, specifically verse thirty-five. But hang on a second here, Matthew twenty-three. Let me make sure I get my context here. Okay, here we go, uh, Matthew twenty-three, starting at verse thirty-four. Therefore, I send. I send you prophets and wise men and scribes, some of whom you will kill and crucify, and some you will flog in your synagogues and persecute from town to town, so that on you may come all the righteous blood shed on the earth, from the blood of innocent Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, whom you murdered between the sanctuary and the altar. Wait, Abel? Jesus here is talking about the innocent blood of Abel? Abel, he's acting like Abel's a real person in history, yet Abel was the son of Adam and Eve. You know, those fictitious mythological people from Genesis. How How is it possible that Abel existed and he was real in Jesus' mind, but his parents weren't? Yeah, see, again, the, the issue is not American politics or anything like that the issue here is 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 this fight with modernism we continue occasionally on the side but they're not big buzzy issues and they're certainly not umbilically linked to political issues which is clearly the case here in america but that then causes all sorts of problems that people line up the political issues you've got culture wars going on with the left and the right you've got big political issues um and, and again, your, your political issues, I know a lot of Americans, just like a lot of English people, don't understand French politics. So a lot of um, uh, Americans don't understand that the rest of the world really doesn't do it like that. We don't bundle up the issues that way, whether it's gun laws or abortion or whatever. We just don't make those connections. So that then uh, the, the question of Genesis history or myth, these words uh, are hooked in to whole great... Uh, lists of other things and people are afraid that if you start wobbling about there oh my goodness you're going to be denying this you're going to be affirming that you and we need to lighten up we need to uncouple those issues and we need to say okay um genesis is one of those books like a shakespeare play or like a beethoven symphony or something where you can describe what it sort of literally says here's a beethoven symphony here are the notes duh, 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 duh. and you think well um, that doesn't actually catch what's going on in this. And you want to use bigger language about the opening of Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. You'll say that this is an amazing statement about the, 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 the power of empire and the fate of man and goodness knows what. Um, you still got to play the notes. Um, and in the same way, I want to say Genesis 1, 2, and 3 are some of the most explosive chapters. And when anthropologists talk about myth, what they mean is not 
an untrue story. What they mean is a story which is full of power for how we understand ourselves individually, for how we understand ourselves as a community, for how we understand... Why do I feel like he's waffling? Why are we not getting just a straight answer here? What's wrong with actually believing that Genesis is an actual historical account like Jesus did? Like Luke did under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tracing Jesus' genealogy all the way back to historical Adam. What's wrong with that? Why can't we just believe that? I'm going with Jesus' opinion. I, I don't I cannot imagine Jesus if you were to sit him down right now and point a camera at him, you know, and put the lights on and ask him, Jesus, you know, big burning question is uh, you know, do, do, do you think that uh, Adam and Eve were actual historical people? I can see Jesus just rolling his eyes going, "What does the text say?" Have you not read what the human project is all about and some of its paradoxes and tragedies and so on. The mythological element, however, has got misunderstood to be if it's myth, therefore it isn't history and vice versa. And that's just for starters. We need to lighten up about these words and maybe find some other words um, because I do think it matters that something like a primal pair getting it wrong did happen but that doesn't mean i'm saying something like a primal pair got it wrong listen i i don't need i don't listen i don't think it's important whether or not you actually believe that an actual adam and an actual eve actually were the very two people first two people that god created and that they that they got it wrong but it's important that you believe that there was you know, a couple that something like a couple kind of got it wrong. That's 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 the important part. Whatever. Therefore, Genesis is kind of positivist, literal, clunky history over against myth. Um, far from it. I think, for instance, that the six days of Genesis, I'm with John Walton from Wheaton College on this, I think the six days of Genesis would be interpreted in terms of this is how you describe how people make a temple or a tabernacle. This is a way of saying that when the good creator God made the world, he made heaven and earth as the space in which he himself was going to dwell, and he shared the earth bit with human creatures. And you know, to flatten that out into this is simply telling us that the world is made in six days is is almost perversely to avoid. Who out there who believes that the Genesis account in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is literal history has flattened it out to just say that, oh, it only, oh the, the only important part is the clunky part about God creating the world in six days. Don't you think that's just a little bit of a straw man argument? I do. The real thrust of the narrative. And when I then find that people who say, oh, it must have been made in six days, etc., also have a very dualistic view about how one day God is going to throw the present space-time universe in the trash can and leave us all sitting on a cloud playing a harp, um, I say, clearly you just... Have you read uh, Second Peter? It's not that he's going to leave us on a cloud playing a harp. He 
destroys the current heavens, current earth, and death and resurrection seems to be the thing going on here. And he creates a new heaven and a new earth. We're not going to be sitting on a cloud. Who, who's, who is the big defender of the, uh, we're going to be have, you know, basically sit on a cloud playing a harp for all of eternity. I want to meet that theologian. I have yet to meet the theologian out there arguing that we're all going to be sitting on a cloud playing a harp. Last time I checked, that was the stuff that was in the Looney Tunes cartoons. Whenever, uh, whenever a Looney Tune character would finally uh, bite the dust in such a way that it was fatal, they didn't show the uh, Looney Tune character sitting there in a bloody heap on the ground. They showed his spirit ascending with uh, with angels' wings, playing a harp and all that kind of stuff. That's just Hollywood cartoon stuff. I don't know of any serious theologian who believes that. Haven't been reading the same Bible. The meaning of Genesis is that this world was made to be God's abode, God's home, God's dwelling. He's shared it with us, and he now wants to rescue it and redeem it. So that we have to read Genesis for all it's worth. Yeah, but see, if you're going to actually literally believe it, that's not reading it for all it's worth. And to say either history or myth is a way of saying, I'm not going to study this text for all it's worth. I'm just going to flatten it out so that it conforms to the cultural questions that my culture today is telling me to ask. And I think that's a form of actually being unfaithful to the text itself. You know, funny enough, I think that uh, having a view of, of uh, Genesis that's less than Jesus' view is uh, being unfaithful to the text itself. What do you think? would love to get your feedback. My email address, if you'd like to chime in on this particular issue, is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. We're up on our second break. And uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to be uh, asking, well, I'm asking the question, is Dallas, Dallas Willard, spiritual formations, spiritual disciplines guru, also popular modernizer and promoter of uh, repackaged uh, Roman Catholic monastic mysticism. Is, is this guy even a Christian? I'm asking the question, and we're going to see if we can find the answer to that on the other side of this break during our sermon review time. So I know that I'm stepping on toes, and there's a lot of people who like Dallas Willard out there, but you need to hear what I'm what we're going to be playing, and we need to ask this question. So if you'd like to email me, you can. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com. Or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. We will be right back. Relevance Schmelevance. We preach Christ crucified for our sins. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough. Of this sissy, pansy, cunning, photo-written music, you have the audacity to call worship. 
Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Don't pay more for travel than you need to. Hi, Chris Rosebro here to tell you about Pirate Christian Radio's featured advertiser, Cheap O Air. Yeah, I, I know the name doesn't sound real, but let me assure you it is. Cheapo Air is a leading provider of airline tickets, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Cheapo Air has extensive partnerships with the top travel brands in the world and also has a lowest airfare guarantee for the winter. Now, whether you need to travel for business or for pleasure, Cheapo Air can help you save money. And if you visit our website, piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap, we have a promo code that is good through January 25th. Wait, stop. No, it's good through February 15th. That's right. Cheapo Air has updated their promo code and extended it now to February 15th. Back to this commercial as previously scheduled. That will save you an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the banner and book your low-cost travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase at Cheapo Air goes to support Pirate Christian Radio. Are you tired of lousy service? When you need help with repairs around the house, Angie's List members will help you decide which service companies to trust and which ones to avoid. Kiplinger said, Angie's List is a virtual backyard fence with talk about the dry cleaner, the drywaller, and everything in between. With Angie's List, you get access to great local reviews on their website, live support through their call center, the award-winning Angie's List magazine, and access to their complaint resolution team, as well as discounts from highly rated service companies. If you'd like to find out more about Angie's List and their unbiased reviews of service companies and doctors in your area, then call them toll-free at 877-225-0478. Again, that's 877-225-0478. Call Angie's List today, and you'll be done with lousy service forever. All right, we're back. Hour number two of Fighting for the Faith. I have to warn you ahead of time, this segment will be very controversial. I don't mind doing this kind of work. It needs to be done. And I know a lot of you are going to already have opinions. Well, Dallas Willard, I mean, he's he's a Christian author. They, they, they teach his stuff at Christian seminaries and colleges. He has to be a Christian, right? Well, we'll see. The good, the bad, the ugly, we review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We are an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Now, today's sermon review isn't really a sermon, but it was kind of taught during the sermon time at John Ortberg's uh, church, Menlo Park Presbyterian Church out there on the uh, left coast. 
And his guest during the Advent season was Dallas Willard, spiritual formation guru, updater of Roman Catholic monastic mysticism, who shared the dais with him, and they were sitting having a conversation, answering tough questions. I have no problem with answering tough questions. I do that a lot myself. The, the issue is not the question. The issue is the answer to the question. And after listening to Dallas Willard's answers to tough questions, some in particular, I'm heavily leaning towards not believing that this man is actually a Christian. Why? Complete and utter confusion of law and gospel? A strange universalism? I'll let you hear it for yourself. So let me kill the music here. Without any further ado, here is Dallas Willard. And uh, the first question that we're going to be looking at here is uh, a question regarding the assurance of salvation. So assurance of salvation is the, quote, tough question. Here is Dallas Willard and uh, John Ortberg. Uh, this is a question that uh, somebody just texted in. And by the way, the 930 service has set a new record for texting. Um, <laughs> Uh, but it has to do with um, uh, both the afterlife as well as the existence of other religions. And it's a kind of thing that I think a lot of folks are troubled mm -hmm. by. It's a question that often comes up um, when people are talking uh, to, say, a, someone who's regarded as a spokesperson for Christianity generally. Mm -hmm. um, and it takes this form. What happens to, to devout Jews or to somebody who is a devoted practitioner of a different way. Or, Christians, of, sorry, or, or of our way, too. We might well ask what happens to a devout Christian. No. But see, we usually don't think about it that well, way. I think the general, the general assumption is that Christian to be a Christian means to believe that if you are a Christian, if you adhere to Christian beliefs, then after you die, you're okay. And if you don't, then you're in trouble. Are we really prepared to accept that? Um, it's kind of like everyone speaks with an accent except me. Everyone has a culture except me. I don't have a culture. And we're unconscious of how we relate here, and yet our very own teaching is not that if you're a devout Christian, you're fixed up with God. So the answer, the, the question's on the table, what happens to a devout Jew when they die? I would open up my Bible and basically say they don't trust in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. They are unregenerate. Our teaching is about... We just Life. pause for a moment there, because yeah. I think there's a lot of head scratching well, going on right no, now. Teaching do... is not that if you're a devout Christian, you're all fixed up with God. Well, I mean... Doesn't Jesus fix you all up with God? Isn't the biblical story, the biblical gospel, that Christ died for our sins, in accordance with the scripture, 
and that he was raised on the third day. Isn't the call of the gospel repentance and the forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name? Or as Jesus put it, how does it go? John three sixteen. For God so loved the world that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. The biblical gospel calls us to repent of our sin and rebellion against God and to believe in Christ and what he has done for us, the gospel, and trust in him for the forgiveness of our sins. And it's Christ through his perfect life, death, and resurrection for us that patches us all up with God, isn't it? That not that the biblical gospel? Am I missing something? Isn't that what Christianity teaches? Rather than say that, I would just throw it out and ask you all to think about it. Is that enough? What does being a devout Christian mean? And can you define it in a way which it assures you're fixed with God, but allows a lot of devout Christians not to be fixed with God? What fixes you with God? Uh, Jesus? Everything he's done for me? Now, our scriptures as Christians teach us that in order to be with God, you have to have a gift of eternal life. Okay, you want to explain what that is, please? But being a devout Christian doesn't necessarily mean that because you find a lot of devout Christians who don't have it. In other words, they may be part of a Christian culture or That's exactly in church right. life, but they yep. don't actually have an ongoing right. relationship right. with God. And so that's why we want to say now, the way the question is often right. put, well, won't devout Buddhists and devout Hindus? And Well, it depends on what you mean by devout. Now, I believe that everyone who deserves to be saved will be saved no matter where, where they are or what they do. Did you hear that? I, he said, I believe everyone who deserves to be saved will be saved regardless of who they are or what they do. That's not good news. Uh, who of us deserves to be saved? Let, let me back that up. I want you to hear that again. So that's why we want to say now, the way the question is often right. put, well, won't devout Buddhists and devout Hindus? And well, it depends on what you mean by devout. Now, I believe that everyone who deserves to be saved will be saved no matter where, where they are or what they do. And our scriptures talk about that, and they say things like, God looks on the heart, man looks on the outward appearance. That's not good news. Jesus told us that out of the heart comes all kinds of evil. Hang on a second here, just doing a little search here in the gospel. Let's see here, all those words. Um, okay, let's see here. Uh, Matthew fifteen nineteen. for out of the heart, this is Jesus sp speaking, come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Yeah, that's not good news. So is why is it that God would look on our hearts and go, oh, 
I'm looking at their heart, and that person deserves to be saved. I'm using Willard's own language here. This is not good news. This is not the biblical good news at all. So if a person, as a Christian, has defined a pattern of devoutness in terms of their external behavior, profession of faith, baptism, and so forth, that may not do it. In fact, being devout generally is a good thing generally. It is a humanly defined thing, and we have to get beyond that to a life with God. So uh, it's so important to understand that God is not biased about these matters, and he is open and in touch with everyone in the world, and for all who seek them with all of their heart, and that is defined in terms of coming to love him and not just love is the law so if it regardless of who you are what religion you practice if you seek after god with all of your heart and you come to love god which is the law just have the right beliefs about him but coming to love him and loving their neighbor as themselves now so there you go let me back that up so you can hear it without me interrupting him he basically says it doesn't matter what religion, where you are, what you believe. It, what matters is if you love God with all of your heart. That is the law, and the law condemns us all. There's nobody who deserves to be saved if that's how you're defining it. For which of us truly does love God with all of our hearts? Not just have the right beliefs about him, but coming to love him and loving their neighbor as themselves. Now... I'm not in charge of who gets in and who doesn't. And I don't know who will and who won't, but I can tell you how. And that is to align yourself experientially with Jesus Christ and learn to live in this world by the creative power of God, which is eternal living. This is all law. This is self-righteous religion. To align yourself with Jesus and in his experience. What is, what is that? That, I think, is most helpful, John, is to understand that eternal life is not something that happens after you die as a reward of something you did or something you did not do. Say that one more time. Eternal life is not something that happens after you die. There was years ago, there, a little Presbyterian girl wrote a book called O Ye Jigs and Juleps. And she defined eternal life as something that happens to you after you die, whether you want it or not. Okay. Eternal life begins now. And you folks here uh, have a Calvinist tradition. It's a wonderful one. If you go back and read Calvin, you'll see that he tells you exactly that. There's a little very readable book called The Golden Book of the Spiritual Life by John Calvin. It's a... It's a reduction of part three of the institutes of the Christian religion. It's all in terms of eternal life. That's what made Calvinism a world-changing force. It was not their doctrine of predestination and the limited atonement and all those other things. It was the reality of God and his life in the soul of the human being. It's Calvinist mysticism, apparently. Okay. 
maybe he just ha- he had an off question. Let's let's hear some more answers to some tough questions. Maybe I'm just hearing him wrong, but I'm not hearing about Christ and him crucified for our sins. I'm hearing that I'm saved if I deserve it because God will look in my heart and find out whether or not I loved him and loved other people, which is the love God and love other people. That's the summary of the Mosaic Law. And Paul, not Calvin or Luther, said that no one will be saved by keeping the law. Hmm. All right. This is a question. This is an answer regarding supposedly Christian arrogance. Here's uh, Dallas Willard and John Ortberg again. Well, that, that brings us to uh, another question that Christians claim that we can know God uh, supremely through Jesus. Mm-hmm. And uh, we live in a world where some people are religious and there's different religions mm-hmm. and, and some people don't embrace any religion at all. Uh, and one of the statements that often is troublesome to people is the quote from Jesus where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't that claim for Christianity arrogant or exclusive? Okay, now I'm, I love the way you put it because it helps us ask the question, is that a claim for Christianity or is that a claim for Christ? And who? Is- Notice the deconstructing questions going on here. I, I, hear, I hear the serpent in the garden... Yeah, that smells like snake to me. Um, Remember the question? Did God really say? So here we got Jesus making the claim, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Okay, let me pull this up and make sure we can... uh, I am the way. Hang on a second here. I want to make sure I got this all in context. John chapter 14. And let me add all the context here. And uh, let's go ahead and uh, look at this passage in context, John 14. Hang on a second here. My computerized Bible doesn't like the way I typed that. Finger fumble is always all all kinds of fun. Here we go. John chapter 14, verse 1. Jesus speaking, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, also believe in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so... Um, would I ha- would I have told you that I uh, would, if it were not so would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go to prepare a place for you I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am there you may be also, and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Hang on a second here. I want to see something here in the Greek. Ego in me. Okay, got it. All right. And uh, he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Now, I'm going to, be, I'm going to point something out here. Willard here in his basically saying, now, was this a claim for Jesus or was it a claim for Christianity? Christianity is the collection, if you would, of those who have been called out through the preaching of the gospel by God, regenerated and given life, and those whom have put their trust 
in Christ alone for forgiveness of sins. And Jesus Christ is the object, the author and the perfecter of their faith. So Christians are the ones who trust in Christ alone for their salvation. So there is no, see, here's the deal. To, to ask the question, well, was this a claim for Christianity or was it a claim for Jesus? That is an artificial uh, bifurcation going on here because Christians are the ones who trust in Christ alone for, for their way to heaven, if you would, for their salvation, their life, and, and all that kind of stuff. This question he's asking, this is out of bounds. This is not any way that any Christian should be speaking. Let me back it up so that you can continue to hear it in context. Here we go. But by me. Mm-hmm. Um, isn't that claim for Christianity arrogant or exclusive? Okay. Now I'm, I love the way you put it because it helps us ask the question, is that a claim for Christianity or is that a claim for Christ? And who is speaking He doesn't say Jesus is the way and truth and the life. He says, I am. No, that's an outright lie. Jesus was the one speaking and he was the one he was referring to. Again, let me read this in context. Okay. This is serious. This is serious twisting of scripture we're hearing on the part of Dallas Willard. Jesus said, okay. And you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Who is Jesus referring to when he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life? He is referring to himself. He's speaking in contradistinction to the Father. At this point, this is, I mean, I, again, I asked the question, is Dallas Willard even a Christian? Back it up. Hear it again. I love the way you put it because it helps us ask the question, is that a claim for Christianity or is that a claim for Christ? And who is speaking? He doesn't say Jesus is the way and truth and the life. He says, I am. And now I am has a long story about the revelation of God, as you know, and I'm sure many of you know, especially in the Gospel of John. And I am is points you back uh, to Exodus, the third chapter. It's this ancient name that yeah, God right. used for himself. That's I right. am the God. And who is Jesus again? Oh, yeah, he's the God of the Old Testament in human flesh. So when Jesus uses the name I am to for himself, he is claiming to be God. Why is Willard here driving a wedge and mishandling this text to somehow make it say makes make make the claim that Jesus isn't pointing to himself as the way, but is using language that's pointing you know, that saying that God is the way? Is there a difference in his theology between God and Jesus? I am. God says to Moses, Moses asked a good question. You remember when he found that bush burning and it didn't burn up? And uh, it would make you want to ask the question, who in the world are you? <laughs> anyway, you know? And uh, God said, I am. I am that I am. 
Now, he wasn't saying, often many of our translations translate that, I am who I am. Everyone am who I am. Everyone is that. Popeye, I am who I am. (laughs) That's not what that's saying. That's making a statement about the only being whose being is based on his own being. In other words, I am independently of everything else. Everything else derives from me. So now when you read that the gospel, gets to the bigness of God. The bigness of God. And no, when Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me, he's not talking about the bigness of God. He's making an exclusive claim regarding himself. And, uh, you know, it's very important to understand that what we have is a little universe and a big God and not a little God and a big universe. And the imagery there is really important, you know, because you, you have to think of whether or not God is kind of flitting around here and there and uh, trying to get in a word. See, that's very hard for us, though, because we don't think of this as being hard. a little universe. But you're saying in comparison in with comparison God, to God, to see it right, we have to see yes. it as a little universe. Right. Or as Disney said, it's a small it's a world small after world all. <laughs> now, keep in mind the, quest, the tough question on the table that they're supposedly answering is the question as to whether or not it's arrogant of Christians to claim to you know, be the only way. And he quoted John chapter 14, Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. This is what's being answered here. <laughs> That's a great line. Yes. Actually, it is. And again, I mean, science has so many things. We don't exactly understand their significance. But the, the, the fact that currently it's assumed that there has to be, uh, of all of matter, about 90-some percent of it has to be what they call cold, dark matter. Now, cold, dark matter is just a word for something they cannot detect by physical means, but must be there to explain things like how the galaxies are distributed in the physical universe. And so the, the intrusion of this presence uh, at, a, at a kind of intuitive sense is what you find in your biblical prayers, for example, which more often than not will, prefe- will preface the prayer by saying, well, now you made everything. Okay, so what Jesus is saying is connected to this big God. Yes. But let's come back to that. Um, it's still, that quote sounds exclusive, narrow, dogmatic, uh, like there's a spirit behind it of failing to embrace all people or shutting people out. Yes. The way that comes down, I think, John, is that people automatically assume that when he states his exclusiveness, he's stating the exclusiveness of Christianity. Now, there is a difference. The difference between the exclusiveness of Jesus of Christ as and, opposed to yes, the religion of Christianity. Right. And where that really gets tough is where people wind up thinking that anyone who does not have knowledge of the historical Jesus is automatically closed off from God. But doesn't the religion of Christianity have the Jesus franchise locked up? Well, it's interesting to think that when the last church in the book of Revelations... Uh, is one where Jesus comes and he's on the outside knocking, wanting to come in and inviting people to please let him come into the church. It's not the human heart that is at issue, though that's a good point. he's, He's inviting us to let him into our church and he will have fellowship with us if he does that.
Okay, so basically, that is such a supreme twist of the book of Revelation. Good night. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. See, that his interpretation is, is that Jesus is outside the church and Jesus wants to come into the church. And this proves that the church doesn't have exclusive lockup on Jesus and that Jesus, you know, he, he, he's, he's, uh, welcome to go into any religion. Because he's the way, not Christianity. This is complete subterfuge. Sophistry is the other word that comes to mind. If you're not sure what that means, look it up, because that's what we're listening to. But Christianity as a form of religion is a historical form. And I don't think anyone today, I mean, what are there, some 38,000, maybe 40,000 different Christian groups. Denominations. Yes, all of whom are right. And actually, in my lifetime, I can remember when the denominations had serious doubts about the others. That has pretty well passed now, entire, not entirely, but uh, a serious problem. And that's because we thought of salvation as having the right beliefs. Thought of sal- salvation is having the right object of your faith, Jesus Christ. Belief, see, this is where it gets real slippery. A little bit of uh, understanding of the biblical languages comes into play here. Jesus, John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him shall have eternal life. That's Jesus' statement, not mine. That's his. And the Greek there is real simple. Pistis is the, is the Greek word. Uh, uh, pistuo, sorry, in this case, it's the verbal form. It means trust. It's not just some set of abstract beliefs that if you have these abstract beliefs, then, you know, tick them off that uh, you're saved. No. It, faith, it, belief in the Greek is trust. It's truly trusting in Christ. Whosoever believes, trusts in him, has eternal life. This is dangerous, dangerous sophistry. Salvation is having the right beliefs. Yes, that that was what made God let us in, was we have the right beliefs. And then in order to have the right beliefs, you have to be aligned with us. Notice the um, straw man argument. If you have the right beliefs, that lets you in. No, If if you have the right object of your faith and trust, Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Oh, man. And that pretty well leaves most people out. Now, where is Christ in all of that? Well, I think that Christ is the one who's in charge of his people, and he's in charge of world history. And he is going to do right by everyone. But now for me, if someone wants to say, well, how do you manage this God relation? I say, look, the way I'm sure that you can find that is by putting your confidence and trust in Christ and relying on him and learning the reality of the kingdom of God. Now, this sounds Christian-ish. What does that mean? And living in that now. Don't wait, and, you know, don't wait until after you die and then you have a test. Because 
you know, take care of it now. So is that what he meant when he said, no one comes to the Father but by me? I do believe that, John. I do believe that. Let me try to be as clear as possible. And that is that he doesn't just come to people in the form that we're most familiar with. That he What? Where is this taught in the scripture? He lights every man that comes into the world. Now, you know, many people want to stay away from that because, well, me and everyone is saved. No, 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 no. Not even all Christians are saved. Now we're talking about saved in a special way. We mean they're going to make the cut when they die. Being saved is for now. So when you talk about, I think in most people's minds, if they think about it, they automatically equate being saved with, I've satisfied the minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven after I die. Right. But you don't use the word saved in that way. No, I, I, I don't. I actually think that you're, people who are saved by being involved in the life that Jesus is now living on earth. <clears throat> so being saved is being involved in the life that Jesus is now living on earth. Just to call me stupid, call me ignorant, call me backwards, call me politically incorrect, whatever you want. But, I mean, just real simple. Where does it say that in the Bible? Where does it say that? Let me replay the question or the statement again and just I, I'm gonna ask you know, where is this in the Bible again? The minimal entrance requirements for getting into heaven after I die. Right. But you don't use the word saved in that way. No, I I, I don't. I actually think that your people who are saved by being involved in the life that Jesus is now living on earth. It sounds like Doug Paget. People who are saved now are living in the life that Jesus is now living on the earth. Where is that in the Bible? Can somebody point me to that passage, please? That's sharing his life. And that's something we can do and know now. And the invitation of Jesus into the kingdom of God is not the invitation into heaven. It's it's the, the kingdom of God is the range of God's effective will. God's kingdom is what he is doing, very simply. We talk about reigning and those kinds of things, but it really means uh, what God is doing. Why does this guy sound like an emergent? To say the kingdom of God is at hand is to say that God is active here and now. It is to say that you can begin interaction with him. And that's what salvation is. Eternal life, Jesus says, is... Notice nothing about repentance and the forgiveness of sins. Just this stuff that's, as far as I can tell, it has its origin in his brain, but not in the Bible and in anything that Christ said. Knowledge of you, the only true God, and of Jesus Christ whom you sent. Now, that's interactive relation. Knowledge is all of us interactive relation. The Bible really knows nothing of what we call head knowledge. It's always life knowledge. Well, this is another... Okay, that was our second question that we're going to cover here. Let's see what else is really fun and exciting. Okay, here we go. Why is Jesus' way the truest way? Let me see if I can pull this one up. Why is Jesus' way the truest way? So I don't know if you can answer this one briefly. You know, obviously, we have not, Dallas did not know what questions were coming. We have not walked through this ahead of time. That's much better that way. Uh, but you've thought a lot about uh, 
how to understand the world yeah. in different approaches yes. like uh, Buddhism or yes. Islam or right. naturalism. Can you summarize briefly why is it that you are a follower of Jesus? Why do you think his way is the truest way? Why do you think Jesus' way is the truest way? What does that language mean? I am the truest way, the truest life. But there's other true ways, too. What are we talking about here? Well, basically because I have seriously looked at the alternatives. And what I find is that once you understand that Christianity is not just a formal approach to life or a culture, but a living contact with God... Eternal life. Say, say that one more time. Christianity yeah. is. Yes. It is, it is not just a culture where you might have a Christian army or a Christian political party as they do in parts of the world. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying that's all bad. It's just that Christianity is a living contact with a living God. You will know that in the Old Testament, the constant issue is a living God. That means a God who acts, who does something. Hmm. And in the Old Testament, that's a constant battle because... So that's why they use that word living often to describe Absolutely right. God. That's why they call him a living God is because he does stuff. I think a lot of times when we read the Bible, um, the language of it, we forget there's actual content behind that stuff. And it just yeah, feels like, you know, pretty yeah, words no, to go up on a plaque. It's so true. Like Lord of Hosts. Well, what's that? What is that? <laughs> that's uncountable number of angels. That's what that host means. An uncountable number of angels. So, uh, but back to this point. Now, you see, we need to affirm that anyone who deserves to be saved by God will be saved. So we need to affirm that anyone who deserves to be saved by God will be saved. Anyone who deserves. Is this law or gospel? It's not gospel. This is not good news. I mean, if I deserve to be saved, then it's something I have done to deserve it. That's law talk. Anyone. Now, the scripture is more generous about that than most people think. But it doesn't say you'll be saved because you're a good Christian, because you're a good uh, Mohammedan or Buddhist or whatever. It talks about the heart. And it describes us like in Romans 2 and elsewhere. It describes the heart that God looks to. And that's a part of our tradition, John. Man looks on the outward appearance. God looks at the heart. It's who you are on the inside. It's not because you're a good Christian by some definition. It's because you love God and you love others out of your love of God. That's the law. So you're say you deserve it. You deserve to be saved because of your love for God and love for others. That's the law. This is not the gospel. This is self-righteousness. This is not biblical Christianity. Unbelievable. And that, that can be misleading. I often have kids who come to... Uh, USC and they get to know me and they say, you know, uh, I've, I find that the, many of the people around the university here are better than the people at my church at home. They're more loving and so on. 
I, wanna, I don't come down on that because, you know, you, you let people work it out gradually. But, I, you know, I think and say, well, get to know them better. <laughs> you know. And usually it comes down to very something very simple. They're not judgmental. Well, that's a good thing. And we folks in churches are too judgmental. And no doubt about that. Yeah. But there's a lot more to the folks in church. And usually the young person hasn't found that out yet. Hmm. Uh, and thank God many of them do as they go along. But it's really important for us to emphasize, whoever deserves to be saved will be saved. God will save. Whoever deserves to be saved will be saved. Well, then that means no one will be saved. That means absolutely not one human being will be saved. And I base that upon Scripture itself. Paul writing, For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. This is Romans chapter 3, verse 9. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be declared righteous in God's sight. That's Romans chapter 3, verse 20. By the way, what are the works of the law? The law demands that we love God with all of our heart and love our neighbor as ourself. That is the summary of the entire Mosaic law. By works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over the former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. So then what then becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is declared righteous by faith apart from works of the law. Let me read another passage. 
Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Bewitched you. It was before your eyes that Jesus was publicly portrayed or placarded as crucified. So let me ask you this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law? What's the summary of the law? Love God, love your neighbor. Or by hearing with faith. Are you so foolish having begun with the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and work miracles among you do so by works of the law? Or by hearing with faith? The answer is by hearing with faith. Just as Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the scripture foreseeing that God would declare righteous the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and continue to do them. Now it is evident that no one is declared righteous before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall continually have to live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. This is not what I'm hearing from Dallas Willard. Let me play this again. In church, and usually the young person hasn't found that out yet. Hmm. Uh, and thank God, many of them do as they go along. But it's really important for us to emphasize: whoever deserves to be saved will be saved. God will save. Whoever deserves to be saved will be saved. No cross, no forgiveness of sins, no justification by grace through faith. Whoever deserves to be saved will be saved. And how do you deserve to be saved? God looks on the heart to see whether or not you love God and love your neighbor. That's the law. This is not Christianity. And again, I ask the question, is Dallas Willard a Christian? Because I'm not hearing Christ and him crucified for our sins. I'm hearing that you have to love God and love your neighbor and that will make it clear to God whether or not you deserve to be saved. Okay, <clears throat> next question here. Let's see here. We've done that one. Okay, question regarding hell. All right, so a uh, question that came in from text uh, for this hour is, um, if there is a God and he's a good God and a loving God, 
why would he send people to hell? Well, I tell you right off, I don't think he sends anyone to hell. I think that God is busy trying to... Yeah, but that's nice that you have that opinion, Dallas, but the scriptures contradict you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, into the flames prepared for the devil and his angels. Matthew 25. ...get people into heaven, and that everyone who in his considered opinion can stand it will get in. Now... Uh, What? What? Hang on, got to back it up again. This guy is a heresy a minute here. Hold on. Listen to this one. To hell. I think that God is busy trying to get people into heaven. And that everyone who in his considered opinion can stand it will get in. So everyone who in his opinion can stand heaven will get in? Where is that in the Bible again? I'm not familiar with that passage. Which parable did Jesus teach that one in? Because I think, you know, most of us think about heaven like it will be Disneyland only without the small world ride. Um, Where anybody who got in, of course, would love it. We think about it as kind of the pleasure factory. So say that again. Heaven is the kind of place where... God will let anyone in who, in his considered opinion, can stand it. So I think for most people, the whole idea of anybody not being able to stand heaven but that's is a head scratcher. See, that's because they don't think about God adequately. No, Dallas, you don't, because you think of God using your own ideas rather than what the scriptures say. The scriptural view that is repeated over and over, if anyone sees God, they die. Right. That doesn't sound like good news. It doesn't sound like good news. What is- I haven't heard any good news at all. In any of these answers. What does that mean? Well, that means that he's overwhelming. That he is so great. And you think of the power that just went into our sun, our solar system, Mm -hmm. our sun. We have to keep a good distance from our sun not to be fried. Hmm. Just because of the power. Well, absolutely. Power is nothing to mess with. Human beings, science, whatever do not understand what energy and power is. They know how to calculate it and deal with it within some limits. They don't know what it is. That's why it's kind of funny that we call this dark matter, dark matter. Did I mention that these answers are actually being given during a church service at Menlo Park uh, Presbyterian Church? I'm not hearing anything about the doctrines of grace here. Um... I'm not hearing anything biblical here either. Kind of just the um, ravings of an old man and the religion that he concocted for himself. Uh, You know, because there's no reason to assume it's matter at all. It works. It has effects. But we're calling it dark matter is just our way of saying we can't think in terms of anything other than matter. This is undetectable as far as we can tell. We know it must be there because it's effects. See, God is really incredibly great. And that's why he has to be very careful in his coming down to human beings. Mm-hmm. And the biblical stories reflect this. When he came down on Sinai, the mountain was jumping around. So then if we're to think about heaven and give it serious thought, because I yeah. do think most of us just think about it in kind of cartoon ways. Um, 
how should we think about it if it's the kind of place where some people can't stand it? We should think of it as a loving community in which this magnificent personal God dwells and continues his work in the universe forever. Mm-hmm. Now, some of your people might like to take Revelations 22.5 and just meditate on that because it tells them what they're going to be doing in the future. And what they're going to be doing in the future. Now, you want to check this out. because uh, Keep in mind, the question is about hell. Because um, this is where you're going. You're not going to a spa. You know. <laughs> Your future is reigning. And you will live and reign with him through ages of ages. See, that's, we kind of think uh, as a... As okay, but now, what is reigning? Because I just picture sitting on a throne. It, it means having supervision for what is good and creative and right. If you want to know what heaven is like, think of your most creative day, your best day at work, if you wish. And that's a very limited idea, and work has unpleasant connotations. But the future of those whom God is calling to him is to work and live with him forever and ever. Think of Jesus' parables. For good service, you get to do more. You've been faithful over little, is faithful over much. God creates, but he also creates creators, and that's you. So if it's the prospect of being... What? He creates creators and that's us? The question is about hell. Revelation chapter 20. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From the presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne and the books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. Sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. I'm just, I'm just, if somebody asks me the question, you just go to the text and, and tell them what the scriptures say. I've never been to hell. I've never been to heaven. I've never been in the presence of God. I have no idea what's going to happen tomorrow. But God has revealed what's going to happen on the last day, on the day of judgment. Strong and creative in the service of the good. Why doesn't everybody get in on that? Why would God shut some people off into hell? Because they think they are God. And that's a very practical kind of thing. They believe that they're in charge. And that's, one, that's the one thing that you will never be able to think once you get to heaven. <laughs> you will never get to think the thought. You're in charge. I'm in charge. That's right. And of course, for many of us here, that will be a great relief. <laughs> but for many people, it's not a great relief. They want to be in charge. And, and uh, that, that's a frightful thing when you think about it because being in charge means ultimately that you're alone. 
I, when I say I don't think God sends anyone to hell, I believe that they choose it. I believe that they decide they'd rather be anywhere but God. Hmm. And that's an awful thing to think about. But that actually happens in the human soul. I think it happens in this life. And I think in many ways, and every individual would have to reflect on that, and hopefully they'll have some good people around them to help them reflect on that. Is that really me? And what would have to happen in order for me to be completely in charge? I think the better question is, how do you get that, how do you get your name in that book of life? Does Jesus' death on the cross, forgiveness of sins, repentance, and faith and trust in Christ, does any of that have anything to do with it? I wonder, why is that not being talked about? Another way of thinking about it, John, we have all of these stories and fables about people who have given, been given wealth that they cannot manage and how it ruins their lives. Mm. The stories about who, the people who win the lottery. By the way, there's a holiday period and you get to see some good movies for a change. One is Mr. Deeds Goes to Town. Do you know that movie? Oh, well, you may have to sit up to 4.30 to watch it. But watch it. It's a story about a man who comes into an inheritance and he wants to use it for good and everyone thinks he's crazy and tries to take it away from him. Um, Gary Cooper's good. Gary Cooper and Gene Arthur, directed Gene by Arthur. Frank Capra. Yes, that's right. And these are parables. We'll be about... here reviewing movies each week. <laughs> uh, some of them make now, maybe not. <laughs> but these are parables to help us learn that the biggest challenge to us is growing to the point of reliability with power. So the biggest challenge to us is growing to the point of reliability with our power. Is this guy familiar with Christ's crucifixion? Vicarious death on the cross for our sins? I just am a little confused here. All right, next is the question, is Jesus God? Is Jesus God? Well, this is a... A kind of connected question in dealing with different religions. This comes from a uh, Muslim. I believe in God uh, because how creation began cannot be explained in any other way. But I don't believe Jesus is God. Okay, now notice this is a question coming from a Muslim who apparently is listening in on this conversation at Menlo Park uh, Presbyterian Church. And he says he believes in God. He believes in Allah. But he doesn't believe Jesus is God. Does, you know, so is, is what do you need to tell this guy? Well, let's listen carefully. Does that belief matter? And what reason or proof is there that Jesus is God? Right. It really does matter. But now, it isn't that God has a list of things that you are supposed to believe, and if you don't check those off, you're not in. It makes a huge difference to your life whether or not you think Jesus was the divine Son of God or not. I think a lot of people carry a vague notion that what Christianity teaches is there is a checklist of beliefs, and if you can check those all off, God will let you in. It's like the driver's test. If you miss three, <laughs> you're exactly. out. God looks at our heart. What we believe makes a huge difference to our heart. But it isn't. Okay, so God looks at our heart and what we believe does make a huge difference to our heart. Where is that taught in the Bible again, Dallas? 
that we become righteous by having the correct beliefs. We become righteous by trusting God and living from Him. Now, I believe the that sounded somewhat gospely. Hang on, I got to back it up. It's very convoluted. Become righteous by. Hang on, got to go a little farther. Just want to go back just a little bit more. Here we go. <laughs> You're out. Exactly. God looks at our heart. What we believe makes a huge difference to our heart. But it isn't that we become righteous by having the correct beliefs. We become righteous by trusting God and living from Him. So we become righteous by trusting God and living from Him. Again, which of the apostles taught this? Now, I believe the best way to do that is to learn about Christ and put your confidence in Him. Because that way... The best way to do that. Oh, okay. See, there's other ways you can do it, but the best way to do it is to learn about Christ. And <sighs> You have uh, the presence of God to you in a way that makes it much more accessible. Um, so Jesus offers you the presence of God in a much more accessible way than any other way. But other ways are just as accessible, right? So I would start anyone on Christ. I would say, well... Okay, you, you don't believe he's God, and I understand there are a lot of reasons in your culture why you wouldn't possibly say that. But after all, in, in uh, Islam, there's a very high regard for Jesus. So I would start there with this person. And really, there's a high regard in Islam for Jesus. They deny that he's God. They deny that he's th the son of God. They deny that he was crucified for our sins and rose again on the third day, but they relegate him to, you know, they have a high view of him because he was a prophet. You see, that's, that's, that's better than nothing. We should be happy about that. Say, follow up on that. Get to know, not just what is said in your religion about Jesus, but do your best to find out what he has actually done, what he actually is. And most importantly, what is he doing now? I like to define salvation as participating in the life that God is now living on earth. This sounds like the emergence. Salvation is uh, participating in the life that God is now living on the earth. Uh, chapter and verse, please. Uh, any passages come to mind here? I'm drawing a blank. Say that one more time. Salvation is participating in the life that God is now living on earth. And, of course, that's just New Testament, Colossians 3. If you now then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above and so on. That's Whoa, that's pulling a fast one. Colossians 3, really, Colossians 3 uh, bears that out. Let's take a look at Colossians chapter 3. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For if you have died, your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, 
What is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry? On account of these, the wrath of God is coming, and these you too once walked when you were living in them. But now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, obscene talk. Uh, yeah, I'm not seeing uh, what he said in uh, Colossians 3. Uh, let me back it up. Maybe I just misheard him. Here we, here we go. What he has actually done, what he actually is. And most importantly, what is he doing now? I like to define salvation as participating in the life that God is now living on earth. Colossians 3 says, if you've been raised with Christ, uh, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Nothing in that text about participating in the life that God is now living on earth. Colossians 3 just outright doesn't make any sense in light of what you said. I'm going to go with Colossians 3 and basically say, you don't understand what that passage says. Say that one more time. Salvation is is participating in the life that God is now living on earth. And of course, that's just New Testament, Colossians 3. Uh, No, it's not. You're lying. If you now then be risen with Christ, seek those things that are above and so on. That's the standard picture, life. Now, you don't have to have it all right to have that because it is a gift of God. But I'll tell you. So really for anybody who is sincerely searching, they can take a next step towards him. That's what I would encourage anyone to do. Really? So anyone who's sincerely searching, you can take a next step towards God. Where is that in the Bible again? But in dealing with an individual, of course, you want to listen carefully to where they are. Yeah and try to know how you can help them best. But the general advice I would give to anyone is, well, get to know Christ. How do I do that? Do I invite him out for coffee at Starbucks? How do I get to know Christ? Best you can. Don't lay down a lot of conditions beforehand. And let him validate himself to you. And if he doesn't... What? Get to know him as best you can and let Christ validate himself to me. What did these guys smoke prior to going on stage there at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church? I think this is a strong, strong argument in favor of random drug screening of all of these guys. I I think this is drug-induced. This is not biblical. This is something else. Then that's the end of the story. You know, I mean, we don't have anything better to offer than that. (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah, actually, I have something far better to offer that Muslim guy. By the way, this is all the uh, questions I can handle at the moment. Tough answers, so to speak. Um, I have something far better to offer that Muslim. Jesus Christ claimed to be the one true God of the Old Testament in human flesh. When he was challenged regarding his authority to do the things that he was doing, namely driving the uh, money changers out of the temple. I mean, after all, the temple is the very house of God, if you would. Jesus drove him out and he basically said, you you know, you've turned my father's house into a den of thieves. And uh, and the Jewish leaders challenged Christ and says, by what authority are you doing these things? And Jesus said, tear down this temple and I will raise it again in three days. And they said, it took 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to rebuild it in three days. Right. 
But the temple he was speaking of was not that temple, but it was the temple of his body. Jesus Christ claimed to be none other than the God of the Old Testament in human flesh and the authority by which he was doing the things that he was doing. He would prove it by raising himself from the dead on the third day after he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, proving once and for all that he and he alone is the one true God. And the good news is that he died on the cross for our sins. Neither you nor me ever can stand before God in our own righteousness. And God would say, you know, I've just looked at your heart. And you know what? You deserve to be saved. No. When God looks into your heart and into mine, what does he see? A sinner. One who daily falls short of what it is that he has demanded of us and rightfully demanded of us as our creator. Daily we sin against him in thought, word, and deed, and by the things we do and the things we don't do. We justly deserve from God his present and his eternal punishment. And he calls us to repentance. He calls us to be heartily sorry for our wretched, wicked rebellion against him daily. And calls us not to his wrath, but to the forgiveness of all of our sins won by Christ and his death on the cross for us. He is our creator, and he's also the author and the perfecter of our faith, and he's the object of our worship. He is our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and he has come to save us and calls us to repent of our sins and trust in this good news, the good news of the forgiveness of sins won by our very God for our salvation. He calls us to turn from our wickedness and our evil passions and instead trust in him and receive his forgiveness. And he promises that through this good news, he will set us free from sin death, and the devil himself. Do you believe that? Do you believe that you are a sinner? Repent. Trust in Christ. Receive his forgiveness. It's a gift. It's free. And it's for you. Didn't hear any of that from Dallas Willard. So I ask you the question. I'll leave it to you. Having heard what you heard, in context, him answering the tough questions regarding who is Jesus and hell and all that kind of stuff. Is Dallas Willard a Christian? I haven't seen any evidence that he is. For he teaches salvation through the thing you deserve. If I got what I deserve and you got what you deserve, we would be cast into the lake of fire. Well, we're at the end of another edition of Fighting for the Faith, and I need to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon your generous financial contributions in order to continue to bring this important and controversial, hard-hitting radio program to you as well as to the world. 
the way you support us, the way we would like you for, for you to support us, and I ask you kindly to join our crew. It is a mere $6.95 a month. That's far less than cable television or your or your phone bill or your, you know, or it's even less than a texting plan on most cell phone uh, plans. It's $6.95 a month. And when you join our crew, you also get access to our Pirate Cove, which is a growing treasure trove of theological resources from from all of Christian history designed to help you go deeper in Christ, his word, sound doctrine, good theology, and Christ-centered apologetics. The way you join is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com, and click on the Join Our Crew button. Join our crew. Of course, if you'd like to donate above and beyond, you can do so so by clicking on the Donate button or making your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and sending it to Post Office Box 508, Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. So again, I ask you the question, is Dallas Willard a Christian? Does he preach the biblical Christian gospel? What do you think? Email me. Talk back at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can ask to be my friend on Facebook. It's facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. Or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, Pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for your sins. Amen. Amen.